Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. I have been sat on this episode for quite a while due to some technical difficulties, which makes me sound all important, but really my laptop was broken and I couldn't access the files. But this is me talking to David Hans Barker, aka Meditation Dave. Dave is a meditation master, and there are a lot of people that claim to be meditation masters nowadays, but this guy is as legit as it gets. I honestly have never met anyone so wise. It was such an honor to be able to sit down and chat to him. He hosted me at his amazing resort in Bali called the Astana, which um, if you look that up online, I'll put the link to it in the description here. It's just an incredible place. I just felt very grateful that the podcast has taken me there. So before we get into the episode, let me just break a little bit down and chat about the sponsor of the podcast. So this podcast is brought to you not only by me, but by BetterHelp. And BetterHelp provide an online therapy service to millions of people around the world. That's millions with a capital M. They provide a secure online counselling service, which can be accessed within 48 hours of filling out the form through the link which will be in the description, or you head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. You get 10% off your first month, but that's not really the important bit here. The important bit here is you get access to a therapist each week. You can text them if you have particular things that you want to speak to them about in that session. If you don't like speaking over video call and you're struggling to find a therapist that won't do face-to-face or video or give it to you in any other way, you can even do it via email a couple times a week as well you'll be able to find someone that will suit your needs so whether you're sad whether you're anxious or whether you just want to get to know yourself on a deeper level then BetterHelp can help you there so that is betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and that is 10% off your first month and honestly if you give eight weeks of therapy a go your whole damn life is going to change but that's it on the therapy so thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring the podcast and you know where to go if you need it. Secondly, there's a Patreon. If you want to support me as a creator, if you like what I do, if you want to get access to some bonus content, bonus episodes, head to patreon.com forward slash a need to read. And for the price of a fancy coffee, you get to continue listening to these podcasts because look, if I go broke, I won't be able to do this. And you get some bonus content as well as the book club. The book for next month I'll tell you now, is Surrounded by Idiots by Thomas Erickson. So if you buy that and join the book club, then your life might just get 0.5% better. I don't know where I've got that statistic from, but it sounds pretty legit. Not too high, not too low. But the important part is here. I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Dave, a.k.a. Meditation Dave, a.k.a. one fucking wise bloke. Here it is. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm going to go in dry. Dave, welcome to A Need to Read. Thanks for coming on, mate. It's Wonderful to be here. Thanks for reaching out. Mate, it's incredible to be here at your insane resort, which is probably the best place I've ever been to in my whole entire life, um, which I haven't, I've been holding that in until now. I feel like you've been holding conversation back for the last hour because you just want to <laughs> dump it all on camera and it's like you didn't want to say it beforehand. Yeah, literally everything. I'm like, we're having conversations. I'm like, please save it for the podcast. Please save it for the podcast. Please save it for the podcast. <laughs> but I think that's just because I, 
every sort of drip of conversation you have, you're, you're dropping bombs on me. <laughs> that I'm like, oh my God, I cannot wait to get recording. So there's going to be a lot of value offered by you. Well, I'm just like a kid in a candy store because I love to talk to other people who love to read. Yeah. So it's like when you reached out to me, I was like, oh, another dude who's like obs obsessed with books. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, perfect. Well, look, um, where are we going to kick it off? It's, it's that horrible question of introducing yourself. Um, and I suppose introducing to me and everyone that's listening as well, mm -hmm. um, what's, what started your journey? What's got you where you are today? You know, what is your name, where you come from? And just go from there. Well, there's a bunch of different ways I can answer that, right? Yeah. I've got another good friend from the UK, Maxim Lewis. Max, if you're watching this, love you, bro. But um, we met each other when we were 17, and we both grew out of like very difficult circumstances, and we met mm. each other. We were kind of fascinated with each other because we were like, how did you make it through without losing all your humanity? Yeah. You know, we wondered, like, what's the thing that made the difference that allowed you to make it through where so many people ended up in prison, you know, premature families like teenage pre uh, pregnancies, this kind yeah. of thing, stayed in gangs, got into crime, or just got completely squashed by it and had yeah. to minimize themselves. And so we were wanting to figure that out, like what were the key elements? And what we realized is we could tell a hundred different stories that would all be true at the same time. Okay. So there's a lot of different things that I could say got me in the game, but this is about reading, right? So my sister and my mother taught me to read very young. Yeah. So I was reading like as a kid, and I remember my first day in school when I was five, when they take you into primary school, and it was reading time, they put you in reading corner, and they give you a bunch of these kids' books. And they were like, okay, read one, and then we do the next thing afterwards, it's like mm. the end of the day or whatever. And so I went to teach, and I was like, I'm done. And she was like, okay, great, pick another one. And I'm like, no, I'm, I've read them all. And she thought I was lying, so she got me to sit down with her. And these were just kids' books that had like yeah. one line on a page, right? So then I just took her through and showed her that I could read the whole things. And then she was like, okay, wow. So I'd read the like 30 or whatever there were books that were yeah. in the primary school class. So then from that day, they gave me a pass to go to the library, like down, yeah. the, down the road in one of the, the bigger classes or whatever like that. And so I was able to be able to go and pick the books I wanted to read and read them. So I had like free reign from five to be able to dig into things. Jesus. So I feel like that had quite an impact. And I started reading like adults books, like low level adults books when I was like seven years old or something. Yeah. So I feel like my mom and my elder sister, Natasha, um, deserve a lot of the credit for anything that happened afterwards because I was able to just start digging into all these different, different minds. Yeah, that's amazing. See, I was completely different in school. Like I remember at once when I was like 13, 14, my mom was like, oh, we, I think you might be a bit dyslexic. <laughs> I was like, I think I might actually just be a bit lazy. <laughs> but to, to be interested and like pulled towards reading from a young age, is that just carried on throughout your whole life? Oh yeah, like, um, I mean, maybe in some ways we probably weren't that different because I was deep into the reading, but I nearly got kicked out of school on multiple occasions. Oh, okay. Both well, primary school for nearly burning the place down and like high school for fighting and just yeah. being a bit of a dick, you know, yeah. like all the stuff that you do as a teenage boy. Yeah. So. Like in the last two years of high school, I think I had something like 30% attendance. Okay. And I was just like in and out of the system, right? Yeah. But I stuck to it and the books helped because I was in such a negative environment that I was always digging for gold. Yeah. And so I was looking, there wasn't like a mentor figure in my life or someone who came along and, you know, hit me with a stick and taught me Kung Fu yeah. so that I could sort of grow up and become the man I wanted to be. Yeah. So I realized that books were a wonderful resource because there were people 
that existed before us that had obviously learned more. Mm. And if I could tap onto those threads of thought, I could find the useful ones. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like books I find are just like, they're mentors that you're never going to meet. Uh, I'm lucky with the podcast, I get to speak to a lot of like brilliant people. Well, you were people. just saying before, except for you and Stephen Pressfield, yeah, yeah. you get to meet your mentors. Yeah, know? yeah, which now I'm very fortunate to be that way. But before I was like, these people, they put their lives work into a book and I get to speak to them in my own voice. And it's just fascinating. But where, where was it? Um, I'm going to go back to your sort of story. You said you were raised in London. Mm. Whereabouts was it? Just different areas here or there, like mm. in like Greater West London. So like yeah. Hounslow, Southall, Ealing, like this kind of area, like a little bit west of Shepherd's Bush. Okay, all right. So right in in the ends, as a, as they in do the ends, now. Yeah, yeah. like the, <laughs> the not so glamorous yeah. like ends of London. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fascinating. And then how how did you become to be this meditation teacher, biohacking resort owner? What where did you get out of London? Where did you go then? I was dreaming as a child of getting one of those toy cars and like yeah. riding away from home. Okay. So it was always the dream to get out and travel. Yeah. And like my dad's from the States and like my mom's British Indian. So like my family's from all over. Yeah. Right? I've got Sikh, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, hmm. like relatives all in my family. And I nearly became a Buddhist monk and I've got Muslim business partners. So I'm pretty okay. much surrounded by all the yeah. religions. So the world was always like right there. And I always felt that the, our environment can limit us. And yeah. I had access to these minds like you're talking about. So I realized, oh, these humans exist. They're, not just, they're just not people I have contact with right now. Yeah. So if I want to live a bigger life, I need to go and start traveling and moving around. Yeah. But where it really changed is when I was 14. And I've spoken about this a lot of times before, so I don't just want to repeat myself yeah. like on this, but is that I came to a crisis point where I had that, moment, that realization that a lot of us have, which is that I was the one to blame for all my problems. I was blaming this environment, I was blaming the people around me, I was blaming the violence, the, you know, my mother for not raising me right, my dad for not being there, like all these different things. Yeah. And just in an instant, I realized that none of them were to blame, I was to blame. Yeah. They were humans and they owed me nothing. Yeah. You know, and the world was the world and it owed me nothing. And yeah. even if God's there and God's God, he owes me nothing. Yeah. I am me and I'm regardless of all these other forces that I'm interacting with, I'm making choices day to day to be what I want to be. As a, yeah. How do I have the right to blame anyone else for the choice I make that leads me one way or another? Yeah. And so I realized that at 14 when I was deep in depression and just living in anxiety, just fighting all the time and just in a bad environment. Yeah. And I just realized, oh, I'm the one that's making this. I could very easily go left where otherwise I was going right. Yeah. I could very easily make this choice where otherwise I was making that choice. And I realized I was living in a world full of options instead of one. And then I started yeah. to experiment with my life. And that led me towards, that made me realize that I was like a caveman version of these other spiritual philosophers that have existed mm. before. And then you start to find them. And before, you know, growing up in England, spirituality is a bit of a dirty word. You know, yeah, you're yeah. not really drawn towards it. It seems a bit weak. And so I was the same even back then, even though I was technically interested in spirituality, I didn't realize I was. Okay. So then... Once I started to practice all these things myself and put my philosophies into action, then I read something by the Buddha or I read something by someone else and I realized, oh, I'm just like an idiot version of these guys. Okay, like and the so, Neanderthal, B-Tech, Buddha. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm there knocking some sticks together trying to make fire and they're there and they've got a combi oven. And so yeah. I just realized I'd be an idiot not to learn from these people who've come before me and attempt to put what they've done into practice. Yeah. And so I started doing that. And so eventually how I came to meditation was that it was really just the extreme end of practicality for me. 
because all these mm. things I was doing were designed to get me out of this negative environment and to grow me out of this negative environment, yeah. you know, to grow me out of what I was and to help my family grow out of the situation they were in because there was a lot of pain there. And spirituality to me was just the thing that worked the best. You know, yeah. So once you experiment with all this other stuff, you get to meditation, which is just the art of getting to know yourself and use yourself as a, um, as a being and to yeah. get in touch with that. And then once you do that, you can do everything better. Yeah. And then that led towards the money, the meditation center, all the other stuff, which are really just tail end benefits of that first interest. Yeah, that's a, such a mature, like, attitude to adopt at 14. <laughs> I remember being 14 and I couldn't have thought of meditation. I think there's, I don't think anyone listening would have been meditating at 14 or, or even potentially interested in it. Well, you just gave me a book mentioning Einstein, right? Yeah. And so I read a quote by him that explains it perfectly, which mm. is my favorite Einstein quote. Yeah. Which is, he was asked about relativity, yeah. by, and to explain it in layman's terms. Yeah. And he said, spend two, hour, two minutes with your hand on a hot stove, and it will feel like two hours. Spend mm. two hours with a beautiful woman, and it will feel like two minutes. Mm. That's relativity. Okay. And so it's a way for you to be able to condense <clears throat> time and experience using yeah. intensity. And the first 14 years of my life were just all hot stove. Okay. So then it was like compounded pressure to either be broken by a thing or to be able to learn a way out of it. Yeah. That's amazing. 14 years of the hand on a hot stove sounds like a lot to deal with. Well, that's why all of, <laughs> all of this now, if I'm being perfectly honest, doesn't really matter that much to me because it's just like easy. Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, that's done. So whatever comes now after this is just like easy. Yeah. Okay. So it's like you're on easy street. It's a bit of a bonus now. Anything that's, anything that's coming. Well, now, and now I realize that controlled doses of pain actually are good for you. Yeah. And that, that pain I went through when I was younger was wonderful for me because it gives me contrast and it gives me the ability to go into that state. Mm. Like you're a jujitsu practitioner, right? Yeah. So you're in a state of intensity with someone. Like jujitsu gets exhausting. Oh. You know, you're yeah. just there. If you know how to live in that state, whereas they're only visiting that state, you're already mm. won. Yeah. You know, because they're uncomfortable where you're comfortable. Yeah. And so I realized that that just did, that childhood just did me a great favor. Yeah. Because it meant that all of this is comfortable. Yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. I love speaking to people who have the whole post-traumatic growth thing. It's not like a PTSD, it's, it's PTSG. Yeah. And it's so admirable to see people come from humble beginnings, to say the least, <laughs> to, um, to like where, where you are today and to see it in that way. It's Thank quite rare. Much. And I think obviously people like yourself, you, you'll stand out in a crowd because of that. How then between choosing books and, and choosing to make that decision to take control of your life, did you end up here in Asia? I think when we were speaking before, you said you've been here now almost 15 years or like nine years, yeah, let's pretty um, much full time. I started, I started traveling nearly 15 years ago now. Mm. And, and most of that's been in Asia because I gravitated towards this. How did I end up here? Well, you said, about that thing that Stephen Pressfield said when he was 27, he's either going to write this book or he's going to die, right? Yeah. When I was 27, I made a promise to God and my friend Max um, mm -hmm. as well, like just because I wanted to have a human there too, yeah. that if I didn't find a way to do exactly what I wanted to do in the physical world and make money with no compromise, then I'd become a monk by the time I was 30. Okay. And because from like 23 to 25, I'd lived like three years like a monk anyway, and then I'd come back into the regular world 
to be able to see what it felt like with these skills as a normal human being. Okay. You know, just being a cog in the wheel, but seeing like, okay, now I'm a happy human being. I'm not suffering from all this stress and trauma that I was from when I was younger. Can I can just come back in and be a, a useful member of society, right? And, and I found that I could, but that I preferred the <coughs> monkish way. Yeah. Because okay. I was going deep into these different meditative experiences that were showing me like crazy things about the universe and all this stuff. Yeah. Right? Bringing me face to face with my real demons and giving me the opportunity to deal with them. Yeah. And that worked very well for me. And then I felt like I could do the same for my family. Yeah. And not by preaching to them, but by actually giving them what they wanted, not what I thought they needed. Because okay. what I thought they needed was all the shit I'd been doing since I was 14, right? Yeah. You know, read some books, get into martial arts, do some meditation, you know, it's yeah. all, all going to be better. They didn't want that. They wanted us to physically be better. They wanted us to make money. So then I thought, how about I show them that the meditation can be used to make money as well? Yeah. Because my brother would always say to me, oh yeah, that's great what you're learning, but show me the results. Yeah, I you get know, it. Show yeah. me the money. You know, he yeah. was getting all Jerry Maguire on me. Yeah. And so, <laughs> like, so then I thought, all right, let's do it then. Like if I... I, if I have really figured some stuff out with this meditation, if I have really figured out real world skills, let yeah. me show them and me and use it almost like as a, as a point to prove that you can make money using this. Yeah. So then I did do that and I didn't want to do it using the meditation to make money in the sense of selling the meditation. Yeah. So I started doing it in the most unlikely ways. Like my life is a little bit like Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, right? Because yeah. as soon as I came back in, I started gambling. I was okay. doing sports trading because I figured out that if you're sports trading, you're not gambling. If you're gambling, you're not sports trading. And that's okay. something that most people who do it don't really figure out because there are systems, there are rhythms to a game. And if I'm seeing the patterns of the universe, the patterns that exist inside of me and that are transferable everywhere, because like the Chinese say, you know, this is the smaller universe, that's the greater universe, yeah. as above, so below in other traditions. Yeah. And I thought if I'm really understanding these patterns and if I'm not just hallucinating and I know what I'm going through is real, I should mm. be able to apply these patterns to other things, right, as well. Yeah. Even something I don't know anything about. So I'd stopped watching sports when I was a teenager. So I started doing this sports trading and looking into systems for how to make money out of it. Yeah. And it worked. Uh, and really? So I figured out that I could use that to make money. And then I was like, okay, but I don't actually want to be a sports trader. It's not my ambition. So yeah. let me do something more creative to make the money. And that's what led me to that promise when I was 27. Well, look, okay. if I don't find a way to do this that does not conflict with any of my values, I'm going to be a monk. Okay. I like that. It doesn't conflict, conflict with any of your values because we were saying before about like the inauthenticity about people mm. on the internet nowadays. And, and I find it difficult within myself because the whole idea of losing judgment of others um, and, and passing judgment on others is it's something that we all ideally we drop because... I feel you feel less judged by others when you judge others less, right? And it's good that you made that choice to do it in a an ethical way in terms of making money. But going from being a monk to then, or, or almost a monk, almost a monk. I wasn't. A monk. I never took the vows, so I lived like mm. a monk for three years. But I'm just not much of a joiner. You know, I didn't want to go okay. and join another political system. Yeah. Have you spent any time in monasteries? Never. No. Monasteries are just political systems too. Okay. You know, someone brushes the floor, someone does this, someone does that. Yeah. And there's little politics and little rules that go on in there. Yeah. And I wasn't there for that. I was there to meditate. Okay. You know, during that period when I was living like a monk, I was meditating six to 18 hours a day. And it was Jesus. taking me to magical places. Yeah. Like, I'll tell you this right now. There's nothing that Vipassana meditation cannot do for you. 
If, okay. if there's something professional meditation has not done for me, it's because of me. It's not because of the technique. Okay. Like once I started using that technique, I realized that as humans, we have only explored the very fringe of what we're capable of. Yeah. And if we're willing to really go to extremes, then then magic is right there. Yeah. And do you get tired in six to 18 hours? It was like, well, no, you get tired after 20 minutes to 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah. After six hours, you're glowing and you're, you're in it. You know, you're, you're de in a deeper state of focus and awareness than you've ever been in before. After 18 mm. hours, you don't need to sleep and you're buzzing. I mean, obviously, yeah. you've got to face down your demons and your complexes before you get to that point. But once you've gone through all of that, then there's gold yeah. at the end. It's just the hero's journey in an internal mini cycle. Yeah, that is insane. 18 hours. So I sit for, what, 20 minutes every morning. And I've been really toying with the idea of upping it now to like 40 minutes. Yeah. And I try and do, I do like maybe 40 minutes a day every other day. But what, what's your advice for someone that's been meditating? I've almost been meditating every day for a year now. Is it time to step it up? All right, so you're in pretty good shape. So imagine, yeah, <laughs> imagine if somebody wanted to learn jujitsu yeah. and they said, yeah, I go, I go into the dojo, you know, mm. I put my gi on, I go in there and then I do the warm-up exercise, I, I shrimp and then mm. I'm done, I'm out. Because I think if I do any more, I'm going to get too tired. Okay. And like, uh, so it's like, it's not, it's not doing anything more for me. And all they do that whole year is they just shrimp. They don't learn any of the other skills they could have been learning. So for me, someone thinking that they're doing a good thing by going in and just doing a minimal dose, they're never experiencing what jujitsu can really do for them. Okay. They're not learning all the other things they could have been learning. So just doing 20 minutes, you're literally just going to go through the mental filing process. Yeah. where the brain starts to normalize. And this is why modern mindfulness has such a low ceiling of benefits because they prescribe such a minimal dose. Yeah. Whereas if you were willing to go deeper and put more time into it, then you'd start to realize, oh, there are other benefits to this that I can't see within 20 minutes. Okay. Just like there are other benefits to the whole jujitsu class and not just the first warm-up exercise. Yeah. And so if we never give ourselves the time to be able to do the whole class, then we never see what the real technique is. Okay. I think it's time for me to stop shrimping then and, and get into the drilling. An hour? Because I'll, I'll start this as of, as of tomorrow. How about I give you a challenge? Yep. How about you do our 10-day retreat? Okay. How long? Oh, I was going to say how long is that? It's 10 days, obviously. 10 days. Yep. And there's, there's three versions of it. There's the Workplace Warrior, Spiritual Hustler, Silent Sadhu. Workplace Warriors, you can do four hours in the morning, four hours in the evening, and then you can still work or raise a baby in between yep. if you've got a family. The spiritual hustler, you can take one to three hours a day out to work and the rest of the day you're meditating. Okay, Jesus. And then the silent side, you're meditating all day and you're silent, no communicating with anyone. That's insane. Like, that's intense. That is intense, but I tell mm. you this right now, if this was a computer game and you were a character that you were mm. growing into some kind of magical hero, this would be the thing that you would learn that would allow you to do that. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this could potentially be a computer game. The, yeah. We don't know. I mean, and, and I'm that character, right? Yeah. Because before, I, I literally just wrote a post about that this morning. Before meditation, it's not like I was a complete idiot. But you know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah, I was, yeah. you know, I hadn't figured things out. I didn't know how to make any money. I made a mess of all my relationships. I was a violent young dude. Yeah. You know, I was relatively intelligent, but I had no idea how to apply it to anything useful. Yeah. And then after I'm meditating and I got deep into it, four years, no, no not even four years, Two years after coming back from living mm. like a monk, I'm a multimillionaire. Yeah, I mean, that makes kind of 
correlates, doesn't it? It's a computer game, right? Yeah. And that's all because of those deep, intensive meditation practices. Yeah. And not to get too personal, but as someone that's so mindful, like what, what do you spend your money on? What's, what's like, what do you want for? Hardly anything. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, um, like, what do I, we were talking about this before. What do I do in my time, right? Yeah. I exercise, I read, I write, I meditate. Every now and then, you know, like I, I might go traveling somewhere and do something like that. But yeah. I start a new business here or there. What do I really spend my money on? I mainly spend my money on maintaining the businesses that I think can help me to achieve my purpose. Yeah. Which is now... One, for me to write a shitload of books before I die. Mm. And two, for me to be able to give as many people as possible this meditation technique. Yeah. Just because it did me so much good. Have you got anything written as of right now? I have, but mainly as like a ghostwriter. Okay. That I, that I write with other people. And I do like that. So I'm getting my technique down. Okay. And I'm right now in the process of writing my first meditation book. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to write everything I know about meditation and just leave it there done. And I'll write in a few <clears> books. I'll write a few beginner's books first and I'll write everything out. Let's say that'll take like 10 to 12 books, something yeah. like that. I'll do that over the next few years. And then I just want to spend the rest of my life writing fiction. Okay, nice. Yeah. Was well, it sort of like alchemist kind of stories? Nope. Nothing like that? No, 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 no agenda. No, I'm not trying to push a message on anyone. I just, I've been writing for longer than I've been meditating. And so yeah. to me, it's like I have ideas like all the time. Yeah. So the only reason I don't, I, I was writing them all the time when I was younger. Yeah. And the only reason I don't write them anymore is because as I start to write a story, I get completely absorbed in it and I don't want to do anything else. Yeah. So like on these meditation courses, like the 10 days, if on one of the days I let my mind start to wander into the story space, yep. then I'll sit there and I'll walk out with a whole novel. And then I've just got it there and I've got like the notes written down on my phone. I just want to meditate now. <laughs> <laughs> You've got this... Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate I get to speak to inspirational people often now, but um, I just feel inspired already to just sit. It's a superpower. And you know, it's like, I wish I'd been meditating when I was fighting when I was younger. And yeah. technically speaking, I was, but I wasn't mm. doing for passionate meditation, right? Which yeah. to me is just like, it's like the granddaddy of meditation techniques. If there's going to be a thing that turns humans into X-Men, it's that, right? Yeah. And I wish I'd been doing for passionate when I've been fighting Muay Thai or doing Kung Fu. Yeah. Because you can just see your physical movements and your habit patterns repeated over and over for mm. you. So you get all this compounded time on the clock. Yeah. You ever read Peak Performance by Charles Garfield? No. What's the, what's the concept? It's, um, yo, do we have the holographic universe in here? Or did Thomas take it? There's this wonderful book called The Holographic Universe, which basically goes back through the history <clears throat> of all, like a lot of people who've achieved wonderful psychedelic states. It yeah. shows that it's not just Indian dudes living in a cave or Chinese monks. Yeah. There are Europeans, there are Americans, there are Africans. <clears throat> it's been going on all across the world all the time. Yeah. And he starts from the modern world and works his way, works his way back to the ancient world. Yeah. Um, Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. And in the modern world where he starts is with Charles Garfield. And Charles Garfield was the person who proposed that visualization was an important aspect of sports performance. Okay. And he started using it with his athletes in the Olympics. Yeah. And so he sets this question that which is best? 100% practice, 0% visualization. 80% practice, 20% visualization. 50-50, 20-80, 0-100, like that. Yeah. So what do you think the prime visualization to practice ratio is, Ed? Because I feel like this is a trap, I'm going to say... 20% practice, 80% visualization. 
you, Ed, are an intelligent human being and you are 100% right. That is exactly the optimum thing because they tested it with basketball players in particular. 80% visualization, 20% practice ended up proving the most successful. And so people like Phil Jackson started to be able to put this into action. We all know what Phil Jackson mm. achieved with the Bulls, right? Um, That's mad. If you don't know, he, then he was the one who coached Michael Jordan yeah, yeah. <laughs> during the peak <laughs> of his career. But... Um, and Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen and all the other wonderful yeah. teammates. So that's just one of the low level things that it can produce. Because if you can visualize it and you can create the neural networks that produce the action, then physically when you go to do it, bang, you've got it programmed. Yeah, of course, because then your body is just going to go with the mind. Because you know with jujitsu, mm. I'm not going to tell you how to do a move and you go there and think how to do it and work it out. Yeah. It's what your body is programmed to do that you're going to end up doing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've noticed that in like high performance, like UFC stars. So Israel Adesanya, he's probably the most spiritual fighter out there at the moment. Like he's always putting Instagram stories up that he's charging his crystals outside. He's super. No like, way. I didn't know he was into yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, he's so, he's so into it. He's all about his like visualization and he just seems calm at all times. Like before he starts his fights, he, he's really into his anime, right? I think anime has got deep, like, spiritual roots within it because it's obviously... It's, Dragon Ball it's, it's Z. Eastern. Yeah, it's Eastern. So he gets out his book of death before he fights people, <laughs> writes, the, writes the name in it and, like, puts it in. And he's just, like... Well, I love him. He's my favourite UFC fighter. I have a poster of him on my wall. And I'm 26. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, um, how have you found visualisation with sports that you've done? Because, like, I, I find when I have time off the mats with jiu-jitsu, I get far better than when I'm on the mats all the time. Like I'm injury prone. So I'll go and watch and I'll be like, I'll be thinking about the moves, thinking about the moves and I'll like think, well, my right leg needs to go here, left arm here, pull here. And then when I get back on the mats, I'm all of a sudden better. I was far better after seven months off the mats because of Corona when I came here in November than I was in March when I last trained. And I, I'd honestly, I'd, I'd completely leveled up because all I could ever do was think about it as opposed to do the performance. So I, like, I'm, I'm with you and yeah. whoever wrote that book. On well, because the thing is that when you do it, you're just repeating what you already know how to do, right? Mm. Whereas when you're thinking about it, you're starting to play with possibilities and then think mm. of other things and introduce new ideas. So the way it works for me is just that I don't think I'm exceptional in any one area of sports. And <coughs> I've just got used to this single thing happening that gives me supreme confidence, which is I start bad at something I mm. do it, I think about how to do it better, and I focus on it, and I get good at it. Yeah. And I've just seen this happen in so many different areas of life, including sports, including physical things, mm. that I've got no anxiety over starting something and being bad at it. Yeah. Like, I've, I've seen myself be terrible at so many things that later I end up becoming so good at it that people think that I was always a natural at it. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, you, you didn't see me a few years ago when yeah. I was like awkward and couldn't do anything in this area. What's so. the most like rogue thing that you've become good at? over the span of your life? Mm. I was pretty good at fighting when I was younger. Mm. But uh, that was more practice. Let me think about this. No, you know what? It's the pattern recognition with the money. Yeah. Because like, when I say I did no training, I mean it literally. Not a little bit of training, a little bit of reading of business. I thought that money was the devil's work. Yeah. So I didn't involve myself in it in the slightest. So I went from thinking, from seeing that the world was starting to give me opportunities once I developed that monkish energy yeah. to just making a choice like, all right, I'm going to take them to then making money. Okay. That was it. And then walking into a room, 
and realizing that perhaps I didn't know how I'm meant to make money in this situation, in this role I've suddenly been thrust in, you know, different business connections yeah. I made, but then realizing I did know what to do. Okay. And I knew what to do because this thing was exactly the same skill, like this pattern recognition, let's say market strategy, which I started yeah. to do, market strategy consultancy, was exactly the same as recognizing patterns of growth within energetic cycles within my body, which is exactly the same as tracking a storyline within a novel. Yeah. You know, you can watch it. I remember a moment when I was in college where we had to read like the first few paragraphs of To Build a Fire by Jack London or mm. something like that, a short story. And they wanted us to guess what happened next. I was like, well, obviously the dude's going to die out there in the wilderness. Mm. And everyone else was like shocked that I could predict it. But it's like you're being le left so many clues all yeah. the time of what's being threaded into a story that you can see from the initial thing the writer drops in where the ripples are going to go. Yeah, the little and, breadcrumbs. Right? And so to me, this is no different. And every aspect of this is no different. Yeah. The financial aspect, the physical aspect, this. It's just that we need to choose to give our total focus to it without letting our habit patterns of thought interfere with us seeing the thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Have you read The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr? No. Definitely worth a read, especially for when well, it might interrupt your flow that you've already got, your natural river, as Stephen Pressfield would say, that you've got inside you. But he talks about the five sort of stages of the story and how you always start off the story with a, a dramatic change that hooks the reader in. I think to like, you can always kind of predict what's going to happen, but I think you have to have an eye for it. And I think it, like you say that other people couldn't see it, but if you've recognized the pattern, you're like, okay, well, this would be too obvious. Mm. Maybe it's going to be this. Yeah. So like you went from, I'm going to make money, you did market strategy. Well, sports trading. Sports trading. A little bit of property development, then market strategy. I just skipped over those. Yeah. Bits, yeah, okay. So there's lots and lots of different things. And this is all in Asia or, or back in the UK? Both. London, then over to here as well. And I was yeah. back and forth. Okay. Nice. And then it would be also, I'd just be in random situations where I'd just meet people who'd want to give me opportunities. Yes. It was like the first half of my life, I couldn't find the mentor. And I wanted mm. him, right? I wanted Bruce Lee to walk into my life and yeah. be like, yo, Dave, you're the type of young guy I've been looking for. I'm going to train you up, right? Yeah. Or something like that. And, um, and it didn't happen. Yeah. I didn't meet anyone with the wisdom. I didn't meet anyone who could train me. Or probably more accurately, my eyes weren't open enough to see those people when they walked across my path, right? Yeah. That's really what was happening. Second half of my life, I'm getting offered help from all angles from all different places. Yeah. Opportunity is just there. And so that's why I had that thing when I was 27 where like, okay, obviously the opportunity is there, but is this a temptation that's leading me away from myself? Or is this something that's leading me more along my path and my journey? Yeah. So I wanted to clarify that before making a choice which way I was going to go. Yeah, I get you. It's like, it's, well, it's the old saying, when the student is ready, the master will appear or the teacher will appear. Yeah. And was there like a, a switch? I mean, you said you were 27, that's when you made the decision. But when did things just start coming to you and what was the... Like, right. No, actually, it was even before that. Yeah. Things, it was little things. Like I came back, I went back to London uh, after learning the meditation to look after my mother because she had cancer mm. and she made it through. She survived. Yeah. So thank God for that. Shout out, mum. Shout out, mum. <laughs> made it. Proud of you. Like, <laughs> but um, then when I was living like a monk, things just started to come my way. Yeah. I went to drama school when I was a kid and I started getting offered like even just extra roles, but lucrative extra roles to be yeah. able to provide for things. I started just finding money. Yeah. And I walked down the street and find like a 20 pound note. 
you yeah. know, things like just silly things like this. Like people started offering me things, yeah. like to look after their houses, to stay in place. So, so I started to contact these affluent environments that I'd never had contacted with before. Yeah. And they were coming to me. I wasn't doing anything to go to them. There was no pressure from my side to move towards it. And then okay. that just started to get bigger and bigger and escalate more and more. Like I started to get different business opportunities that I didn't even know existed and I'd never seen before. Yeah. And so that's why it became very obvious to me that something was coming for me. Okay. In this. So like there was opportunity there. It's just my choice whether I wanted to say no or yes. Okay. How do you feel that ties in with the old law of attraction? I think there's a big, there's a couple of big mistakes about the law of attraction. Mm -hmm. One, I think is that there's too much emphasis placed upon what you mentally form and not the emotional state behind it. Yeah. And two, even before that, there's too much em emphasis on a conscious action and not a state of being. Yeah, I got you. And I feel like my state of being had changed, so my external environment had changed. Yeah. And then I, I had access to different levels of opportunities that weren't available to me as a young man because I was clouded with tension and pain and aggression mm. and all this trauma I was carrying with me. Well, like you said, after the meditation, it wasn't PTSD. It was yeah. PTG. Yeah. You know, it was growth. It was all net benefit. Yeah. So I remember a specific moment. I talk about this on my meditation courses, actually, and it was like just like it really touched me when I'd always have experiences with animals while I was meditating because mm -hmm. I learned mainly, um, I went deep mainly when I was in the hills of New Zealand in Cal Copper Copper, this beautiful meditation center there. Yeah. And once, once I'd found Vipassana, that was the place that I liked to do it the most at that center and I could go deep in. And then when I came back one time after doing one of these 10 day courses, I knew something had changed. Like yeah. I dissolved my body. I'd been through all these crazy psychedelic experiences that people describe when they're on DMT and ayahuasca and all yeah. this and that, but I'd done it just on me. And I knew something had changed when I came out because I felt lighter. And I, yeah. I didn't just feel different myself. The world started responding to me differently. Mm. And then I came back to the world and I went and sat in my favorite park in New Zealand. And I sat on this bench near these birds that we used to feed when we used to work there. But they were so skittish jumping around. And I just sat there. I didn't have anything to feed them. And slowly one of them just came and landed on my knee. And then another mm. one came and landed on my shoulder. And then suddenly the whole like 20 birds, these little sparrows came yeah. and they're just all just sitting on me. They just trusted you. Yeah, and I'm just there and I'm like, I better not move. But then I start moving to test it and they're fine. They're not scared by it. They're like, they'll, they'll mm. hop from one bit to the next and they're just there. And it was like, I felt like I was just gonna burst into tears. You know, it was just beautiful. Just, just having nature come to me like that. Yeah. And then this old couple walked past and the dude nearly stumbled over because he did like a double take. And yeah. then he went to get a camera <laughs> to take a photo and all the birds flew away, of course. <laughs> but it was just like one of those moments where it was like, this is a real thing. This isn't some imaginary thing that I'm pretending yeah. this happened. Like something has changed fundamentally and it's just, it's made my experience of life a completely different thing. Okay. And maybe life's experience of me a completely different thing as well. Yeah. I think um, when, when you get into meditating. I suppose for you, you've, you've crossed a barrier, right? And, and I, I, I'm nowhere near that barrier just Who knows? yet. Just yet. Was the Mother Teresa thing, like yeah. no, none of us know how near or far we are from God, from yeah. that sublime state, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and um, I think it, when opportunities come to you, I think it comes to being likable. I think I've always been like a, a likable person. I've always had people that have thought I was all right. But I've definitely noticed a huge change in my life and the, and the type of people that are drawn towards me since I've started meditating and since I've started reading just because I think on the whole like it says in that book Mark like don't be a piece <laughs> of shit or like try your best not to because yeah. 
deep down we all are at some stage and, and we will all behave in that way every now and then. Yes. Um, but we can do our best not to be like that all yes. the time yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. You, ha you have to do your best. That's all we can ever do, right, is do our best. So where, where was the point for you where you noticed these things starting to come to you and did you have to piece it together or did you just know straight away that like there's been a change and I'm ready to level up as it were? Well, on, on the note of what you said before, yeah. that actually, that's why the first rule of the Astana, I don't know if you noticed when you came on site, is don't be a dick. Is it? And you'd be surprised. <laughs> Some people actually come to site and they're like, they can't guarantee they're not going to be a dick. Yeah. It's like, how can I promise I'm not going to, you know, like that. Cause yeah, they're, yeah. And they're triggered by it. And mm. I quite like that. I just like that. It's like a, a gatekeeper. Like, look, so be respectful. You know, this yeah. is a meditation center. Come on site. Be friendly. Be polite. Be nice to people. But yeah. don't be a dick, you know? Yeah. That kind of a thing. But, I like that. all right, did I notice it? Yeah, I noticed it straight away. Because mm. I'd had one of those experiences of my body dissolving and me going deep into meditation before I'd found Vipassana with all this other stuff I'd been practicing. Okay. I just knew that I'd been led there imperfectly. Because mm. I knew that I was doing so many different things that it produced this pressure that needed to burst out. Yeah. But I didn't have perfect technique. And Vipassana was perfect technique later. Okay. So a real change had occurred in me before I'd even started doing that deep meditation when yeah. I was 21. And then the next two years I spent looking for the technique that would allow me to repeat that without having to, mm. you know, jingle bells, run around in a circle yeah. or do all this other stuff that I was doing at the same time. And, and then I went through these successive stages of growth mm. where I almost felt like I needed to reacquaint myself with the world to see what new world I was living in. Because yeah. I'd go through a change and I'd realize the way that everything would respond to me would be different. So it would be like, okay, what world am I now facing now that I've been through this layer of meditation? Yeah. I didn't want to take my old assumptions about the world into this new one. Okay, I get you. How, because you've spoken about like psychedelic experiences or like intense visualizations and hallucinations whilst meditating. For me, like I've, I've reached those stages, but not, not through meditation, um, through things like ayahuasca, DMT, yeah. and I felt a, like a radical change, especially after DMT. Ayahuasca for me was very dark and I took some real like lessons from that mm. in terms of where I am, in terms of what I need to be doing for the world and for myself and for the people that I love. But DMT, I feel like changed my life because it was just a, a, like a, a switch, just, just went and I, I had a real sense that the world was not real mm -hmm. and of course like I, I i know whatever i see in front of me is is real for me but um after your sort of visualization psychedelic experiences through meditation was that the kind of feeling that you had that all oh, this isn't quite real or it doesn't quite matter and i think in buddhism it's called um asana Asana, uh, the, like this sense of like no self mm. or not self. Mm -hmm. Anatta. Yes. Not self, yeah. I had the opposite feeling. Okay. I had the feeling it was more real. Mm. And the first time I experienced that state, like the real depth of that state was when I was 21 and I knew I'd experienced something more real than reality. So okay. then when I came back, the difference between... The difference between a trip and that was that I was a traveler and I wasn't a passenger. You know, with a trip, I feel like I'm a passenger, 
the the way has been worn well yeah. and i've maybe taken a helicopter somewhere and been dropped in the middle of a jungle then i'm going to be picked up again and brought back yeah but if someone asked me how do i get to that jungle i wouldn't know okay and i wouldn't and also as we know the journey that you take to be able to get to the person who can make it to the jungle is probably the most important thing yeah because then you become a capable human being mm. and so I feel like the difference with the meditation is you become capable of taking yourself there and there's a lot of soft skills that get developed along the way from here to there as well. Yeah. So then then the psychedelic experience is wonderful, but it's just wonderful. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not the it's not the thing because the thing is all the skills that you develop to get there. Yeah. And that changes everything. But coming back, I felt like every time I came back, I could bring that new layer of understanding to this. So then this became more real to me. I started yeah. to understand more of how this actually works and all interacts. Yeah. And then slowly you start to be able to bring different forms of interacting and vision into this state yeah. that come from the other state. And then you can bridge the two together. Okay. All right. So then for the, for the people that haven't got time or haven't got time, I hate the haven't got time people. And I caught myself thinking it as soon as you said about how long mm. it takes to like do the pasna properly for their everyday worker. They're working from eight in the morning till five, six at night. They've got family. What do you suggest for those people in terms of meditation? But th those are my people, man. Like, yeah. That's where I come from, you know? And that's, um, that's ex exactly what, why we made the workplace warrior schedule. Yeah. Do a 10 day, don't, like this skill to me is the number one skill that you can give to someone to predict success. Okay. If you just start to research who has used this skill throughout history for the last 2,600 years, it is a massive list of kings, emperors, queens, state heads, successful mm. individuals. The Buddha was a prince who walked away from his kingdom for this. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like this is the crowning jewel of what we can experience as humans. Because what you're basically doing is you're learning to navigate the universe. So there's nothing within that that you cannot experience. Okay. So it's the form of travel. So to me to say you have to be someone who can take 10 days out to not have to work or raise kids to do it, it's just a very unegalitarian way of looking at it. Yeah. And this is the opposite. This is the leveler. Yeah. This is the thing that makes this power available to everyone. So we made the workplace warrior schedule so that you can do a 10-day retreat, do your meditation in the morning and the evening, still work a full day, raise a family. Yeah. So just go to, <clears throat> mind me plugging the course? Oh, please feel free. It's obviously it's going to help people, and it's it's going to help you in the long run. So let's, let's and get it's it completely there. free. So yeah. just go to vipassionaonline.com. Simple as that. Vipassionaonline.com. Hit apply. You'll get to choose one of the schedules, which is the workplace warrior, spiritual hustler, silent sadhu, and then do that. Mm. Oh, so that's the ten day. That's the ten day. Okay, that you are told, told me to do. Exactly. Okay, so don't have to... Um... No, but you've, you've got the luxury to not be a workplace warrior, bro. You should do the full one. You yeah, yeah. Switch, switch off for 10 days or even do the spiritual hustler one where you can mm. check your messages, emails, do your social media work for one to three hours a day. Yeah. But then the rest of the time, you're just meditating and you're in it. Okay. Because that will produce the best results. Yeah. It's fascinating. Because like, for me, my, my body's telling me no because I'm like, well, what, what am I going to do with um, jiu-jitsu and what am I going to do with... Doing Instagram, Instagram I can do within a couple of hours a day, if that, even 20 minutes. Yeah. I can chuck up a couple of stories, it will still take over. Jiu-Jitsu, like an hour and a half a day. What do you eat when you... We just made a really simple diet. We used the, the macrobiotic protocol mm. of the Asawa number 7, which yeah. is using brown rice to clean your gut. 
okay. basically. So it's, you can use it as like a cleanse as well. Yeah. Because what you want to do is you want to starve yourself of as much external input as possible yeah. so you can internally digest both okay. mentally, emotionally, and physically. Mm -hmm. So the simpler you can keep the diet, the better. We, we give you all the documents to do with all that yeah. stuff. It just takes care of it. Yeah. But I just want to get rid of this thing as well of like 10 days. 10 days isn't a long time. No, it's 10 not. 10 days is going to go by without you even thinking about it. And in that 10 days, you could have learned the most useful skill that humans have ever been taught. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, it's like the three minutes we did earlier in the cryo chamber that's here at the Astana, everyone. <laughs> three minutes and you told me I thought I was going to think I was going to die. Then we did it. And it was only three minutes. And I think 10 days as well, like 10 days flies. It's, we're what, on the 9th of February mm -hmm. already in 2021? And the next one starts on the 11th of February. Okay. So you could apply right now. And I can guarantee you'll get accepted, Ed, unless you're going to do <laughs> drugs on the course or something like that. Yeah, okay. Uh, right, in the next 10 days. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm going to be all right. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, that's, it's, it's fascinating. Where, where can people learn about it? I know, obviously, through your course mm -hmm. is, is a great place. Um, but people that aren't going to be ready to jump in, they would just want to dip their toe in a very, very, very slightly. To, in fact, to the world of spirituality, mm -hmm. where, where would you suggest people start reading? You know, to be honest, one of the reasons why I started doing these courses, and I wanted to start doing them 13 years ago when I started teaching as well, I'm just one of those people that does things steadily yeah. and slowly, is because I didn't find what I wanted. Okay. There are a lot of good books on meditation, and a lot of people that have come before that have written things, but I didn't find what the Buddha had done. And what the Buddha has done that no one else seems to do is he gives you the A to Z of the breakdown of what meditation really does as a practical skill. Yeah. But the problem is now it's in very old coded language. And unless you've had the experiences yourself, sometimes it's difficult to read through it. Yeah. It can be quite boring because you actually read it. It's from an oral tradition. So there's a lot of repetition going yes, on with yeah. everything. And if you haven't got the motivation to do it, there's a Chinese writer. There was a Chinese writer, rest in peace, called Nan Huai Chin who started an alternative meditation school, who gave quite good practical advice on meditation. Mm -hmm. And by practical, I don't mean what the people who've come out of the 60s have done with the modern mindfulness movement. Because mm -hmm. with all good intentions, what they've done is they've created a very low ceiling for meditation. Okay. So by making it practical, they've also taken away a lot of the big benefits and the aims of what can happen. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because they just didn't have the depth of experience themselves, yeah. which is understandable because we're not told to be able to go that far into things. So Nan Huai Jin is, um, is a good source for that. And he's written about, you could pick up 10 to 20 books of his books oh, of really? meditation and they're all worth reading. And he's one of those people that makes a subject that seems uninteresting, a very practical and interesting subject. A little bit like Daisets Tatara Suzuki did with Zen as okay. well. Like just bringing something to a place where you can use it. Yeah. And I would, really just love to recommend the sutras to people okay. like the buddhist sutras because that's one of the things that i did as i started to meditate more and experience more i realized that a lot of people have just done disservice to the technique either intentionally or unintentionally yeah because they just don't have the frame for it, it was the buddha is the originator of this technique and he knew what he was talking about yeah and he breaks it down and he says what happens as you go through these states and it's accurate okay so it's almost as if like once you've mastered can you master Vipassana? Oh, most definitely, but it's just that there are successive layers of that mastery, right? Yeah. So, like, for example, we're dealing with the physical layer right now, a very physical yeah. layer right now. 
So then you could say you could master your physical being. Yeah. But then underneath that, you've got all these autonomic functions of the body. Yeah. So then you could master that. And then you've got the energy underneath that. And then you've got atomic structure underneath that. And you've got all this other stuff, right? Yeah. So it, there's always like, there's another, another point. Mm. And there might be a complete end point where you're the master of the universe and you can feel and do yeah. whatever you want. But I haven't been there yet. So. No. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like essentially everyone has the answers that they're looking for within themselves? It's just the past is probably the key. 100%. Yeah. Look what happens when you split an atom. What happens when you split an atom? You blow up a Japan. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or you blow up somewhere where you drop the bomb, right? Yeah. Hiroshima or something like that. Mm. You can blow up a whole city with a hydrogen bomb. Yeah. And do much more damage than that. How many atoms do we have in our body? How much power do we have sitting within us right now? I'm so excited. <laughs> right? That's yeah. entirely untapped and not being used. Mm. It's insane. Do you think people want to reach that other side? I don't think people even know what it means to reach that other side. Yeah. And so to ask that question is to ask them something that they have no framework to engage with. Mm. Like, I had no idea what it was going to be like on the other side. Yeah. And luckily I got there and I know it's all positive benefits. Yeah. And that's why I just want as many people as possible to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, of course. In terms of like general everyday emotions, happiness, sadness, I mean, happiness, I imagine, comes hand in hand with this as it's just a general state of being. But do you ever find yourself still like getting sad or like angry or upset since you've reached that level? Or is it something that's a bit more alien to you now that those feelings are sort of a thing of the past? No, I wouldn't say those feelings are a thing of the past. Mm. I'd say that this is one of the big misconceptions about meditation, mm. that it narrows down and shuts down your emotions as opposed mm. to opens them up. Okay. And I think one of the big differences I felt is at first I was just on a high and super happy. Yeah. And then I realized I didn't need to be on a high to be happy. Mm -hmm. I could be angry and be happy with my anger. Yeah. I could be sad and be happy with my sadness. I could yeah. be in depression and enjoying the flavor of depression. Yeah. And so it's more like the fact that you learn to be able to take the whole cake and the whole thing and not yeah. need to be able to limit yourself from one flavor or another. I don't need to live in this portion of the cake and only yeah. eat the icing for me to be happy anymore. Okay. Now it's like the whole thing is delicious, even yeah. the cinnamon. Yeah, it's like loving what is in terms of like you just are more fatty. This goes like stoicism we, we've spoke about briefly. Like the love of fate, whatever happens, you must love it. Because it's part of the flow of life, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the whole thing is just happening. So if you don't love all of it, how can you say you love any of it? You know, yeah. you know where I heard that best is from Chris Rock. Okay. You know, yeah, the comedian? Yeah, because like, yeah. yeah, he said that if you love someone, you can't just love the fluffy white bread in the middle of the loaf. You gotta love the crumbs at the bottom of the toaster. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't love the crumbs, then you don't love the loaf. Yeah. Have you read The Mastery of Love by Miguel Ruiz? No, I read The Four Agreements mm. and I bought The Mastery of Love and it's sitting on my shelf in London right now. Yeah. My apartment has been emptied out, so no, it's not sitting on my shelf, it's sitting in my mother's house. Yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting book. And I'm, in terms of like my podcast, my book reviews never do as well as the guest episodes because of course it's just me chatting about a book. But I love did. that stuff. Yeah. I lo so I'm saying, forget about the people who don't watch your book reviews. Yeah. I'll watch them. I yeah, love yeah, book yeah. reviews. Oh, so. I'm easy. Like I understand the whole, like I said, the whole point of my podcast is so that people can just dip in and out as and when they want. I don't care if people are weekly listeners or if they listen once a month or once every six months. It's now there forever. So when they're like, oh, I think I'm buying that book. Oh, Ed's reviewed it. I'm going to have, have a quick look at that. Mm. But The Mastery of Love, 
spoke so much about how much you need to love all of someone. And it's a complete acceptance, even the shit bits. The parts that you might actually hate, you have to love. And people nowadays, like they get into relationships, they try and change people. It's like, oh, if, um, so you were to get into a relationship and you're like, oh, well, I love you, Ed, but you, you care too much about your jiu-jitsu or like you want to read too much, you don't want to spend too much time with me. Or a common thing that I would have like when I'm getting with like a girl is I don't want to spend time with them too much. Mm. I really, really value my own time. So for someone, if they want to love me and really, really take me as I am, it's just to be happy with the fact that I don't want to spend all that time with them. And it's such an important factor, and I think a lot of people upset themselves by trying to change people nowadays. Well, and the world, and themselves. Mm. I couldn't agree with you more. Like, to me, this is one of the foundational things I learned when I was 18. I mm. remember writing it on my wall in university mm. and just sticking it up there as a reminder to me. Like, I had a big notice board, and I just realized that I just needed to love the pain. Yeah. Because not everyone comes from a background like me, right? They didn't yeah. have the trauma and all this stuff and whatever. Yeah. But even if they don't, how much of life is sugary icing? And how much of very, life, very little. you know what I mean, very yeah. little. And how much of life, and then there's excruciating pain, which also isn't that much, but then there's all the humdrum stuff in the middle, right? Yeah. Your average life. So if you don't learn to love the grind, mm. love the pain, you don't love life. And yeah. so I thought, either what I have to do is become a sugar addict, and we all yeah. know what happens to sugar addicts, yeah. or I learn to love all of this. Yeah. And then I don't need to be chasing after one thing or the other. Yeah. You know, because happiness does not lie in a sugary, pretty, shiny package. Yeah. It's in accepting all of this. Yeah, definitely. I think it's funny because as soon as you learn to become satisfied with little, like your life just becomes so much better. Like yesterday, my laptop broke, which, which we'd spoken about. And uh, I then was like, that started my day off. And I know two years ago, I'd have been like, oh my God, my laptop's broken. I'm going to spend all this money. And I have just completely this complete detachment from these these things because I, I know in reality if the laptop's broken it's not impacting my life that much i can get around it but like you can you can have a good day by even the smallest of things something bad happens to you right you can learn from it yesterday i had a great day because you know what it's like here in bali atms you can never find one that works yeah or they want to swallow your card they want to swallow your too, card yeah well look yesterday i went to the atm the first one i went to spat out my money and it worked and i was like this is this Just is a good the little day. Things. Yeah. yeah, I was like, this is a great day. And then um, I was like, I'll, I'll talk about it. So I went for an STI check, right? And I had a very weird experience. The doctor was like, oh, we don't usually do this one. Um, people don't do it in like Europe. I was like, okay. I didn't really question why they don't do it in Europe anymore. But as soon as like he was like, okay, get up and, and get your penis out. I was like, all right, great. He didn't. So he was like stroking it and he, you know, like more than two shakes is too much, even with yourself when you stood at a urinal. He was stroking my penis about eight to nine times whilst like looking me in the eye. And I was like, mate, what are you doing? This is not, <laughs> not acceptable. And I was like, thinking like, that could really ruin my day. Like I'd have been gutted with that a few years ago, but like now I've got a great story. Like, you know, earlier you were talking about the comedy thing. I was thinking, I could get up and I could talk about that. Like that would make a good laugh for hey, people. You know what? There's um, there's comedy improv here tonight, but mm -hmm. there's also in Changu there's the regular stand-up yeah, nights, right? As well. And yeah, I, I want to get up there. I want to feel that discomfort, like we we're talking about, 
because that is where you grow. And you, you listen to all these comedians. Like, I don't know if you listen to any of the American comedians when they like, I do love their stand interview. Up. It's one of my absolute favorite things. Like, I went through a phase a while back where I was just binge watching all of Jamie Foxx's interviews and mm. impressions as well. Because they love just eating shit on stage and just getting so comfortable in that discomfort. Yeah. And I think that's such a key thing. Like, people don't understand that, like, you've just got to be uncomfortable in life to I completely agree we yeah. were talking about the Hagakure before like yes. the, the book of the samurai by mm. Yamamoto Sunetomo and one of the things it says in there that it is bad without exception to not endure okay so just to learn to endure in general is just a skill that serves you in every area of life yeah so if you can it's just like it's a test for yourself just put up with it endure it and use just start to mm. see how your bandwidth deals with it but yeah. with that whole eating shit on stage thing I feel like Dave Chappelle is just a master of yeah. that He's got so used to just provoking the audience and feeling the hate and learning to be able to, mm. to alchemize it, to do yeah, something yeah. with it. Yeah, it's one of, like, I'd, I'd re have you ever given it a go? No, only with friends. Yeah. I've never done like a real one, but I've, I've done a bit of public speaking and I do a lot of teaching. Yeah. So there's that there, but no, I've, I've helped to write some stand-ups for other people. Okay. So oh, it's, again, it's the same thing as like the ghostwriting thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, <clears throat> I'm not sure if I'm a deliverer on stage of a stand-up show, but I've got a mm. few stand-up shows that I could write within me. Okay, all right, I got you. I got you, so you want to be the guy out of the back, the, the orchestrator. No, I'd be happy yeah. to get up there and do it, but the thing with stand-up that I'm not sure I'd ever get to the point where I was good enough is that I don't think I'd put in the reps. Yes. And I know now that it's just about reps. Like talking about Chris mm. Rock, who's a master, right? Mm. I remember seeing Chris Rock, I saw, I saw Bring the Pain first, mm. like, and then I saw some of him doing those same routines a few years before, yeah. and they were terrible. And, and it was like, and that's when it struck me. It was like, oh, this guy's doing exactly the same thing, but he just hasn't figured out how to do it yet. Yeah. And then by the time he does Bring the Pain, it's like, he's got it. Yeah. He knows the intonation, he knows the gaps, he knows yeah. everything, he's, he's tweaking the audience. And so for me, with all the things I do, I don't think I'd ever, I'd ever do enough stand-up shows yeah. to get those reps in, to be able to just go through the same routine and do it. I don't think that the positive feedback from the audience is a big enough motivator for me to continue doing it. Yeah, I get you. I get you. So it's a, um, it's a case of like you, you just haven't got the time for it in terms of like your focus. You don't want to... Focus. I mean, look, It's not a want, that's I've, the thing. I've got novels in me, right? Yeah, yeah. Bursting to get out of me. And if I don't write those before I die, I'll be a little bit Someone else will write them. That's Someone the will. No, they're like, there in the air. I've yeah. seen Christopher Nolan take a few of my ideas. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. But, um, but it's like, the creativity is there, right? Yeah. But what I mean is that's waiting there to come out of me. So then I'm, I've I already got that. So then if I'm going to dedicate some time to something, I'd rather dedicate it to that than another mm. thing. Yeah, okay. I get you. And what, what is that at the moment for you? Oh, the meditation. Yeah. Yeah, like that, that's why, for me, it's like the meditation first, getting this to people because I feel like... I owe a service to the meditation because okay. it's the thing that changed my life. Yeah. And then I look at all the books that have been written about it, all the programs that are being offered, mm. and it's like, yo, this isn't quite the technique. Yeah. And I feel like the Buddha says he did the same thing, actually. He says that he didn't discover it, he rediscovered it. Because okay. it's just there, it's there yeah. in the universe. And then I think if you get it, you've got an obligation to be able to give it to people. Yeah. To be like, okay, now we don't speak Pali or we don't speak Sanskrit or that language. Yeah. So there's some things that get lost in translation. Yeah. So if you start to learn it and you want to give it to other people, you have a bit of a duty to be able to reframe it and do it. Okay. Because if you want to talk about what all of this is, like the businesses and the retreat center and all this kind of stuff, these are a gift. 
from that form of meditation. Yeah. Without that form of meditation, I wouldn't have this. So the least I can do is give something back and at least re-encapsulate the meditation so other mm. people can learn it in the modern age. Yeah. And in a few years, someone will come along and they'll be deeper than me and they'll re-encapsulate it and they'll do that and then keep it alive. We keep that yeah. thread alive. Yeah, it's sort of like adapt to the new world and then there we go. overcome whatever's in the way. And that's how I feel with reading, honestly. Like, mm -hmm. So you've read all your life, I've read for two years. You've only been reading for two years? For two years. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and I love the fact that you're so deep into it now yeah. and you jumped in and did this. And like, I just, it's just a passion of mine and it really changed my life. Like, you know, I wouldn't be able to in to the Astana a couple of years ago. The whole don't be a dick thing, I had to stay at the door. Like, <laughs> it's just changed my life in so many profound ways. I, I, honestly, I felt like it was selfish of me to keep that within myself and I felt like I had to spread that to other people. And it's nice and it's encouraging to hear from you that that's how you feel about meditation. To know that that's the exactly same kind of like muse or calling that I've got yeah. with just talking about books that are just crazy bits of words on paper that we just no, interpret in our own way. It's a catalogue of human history. Mm. So, I'm an alien. Okay. And you're floating in space. You're in that, you're in that moment between life and death. Yeah. And you're already out of your body and you're about to pass on. And then you realize, as you're going through that stage, you've got to encounter all these spiritual alien beings. Yeah. And your job is to pass them one book that will teach them oh about your goodness. experience on Earth. I'd have to write Your it. experience on Earth. No, 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 it's not an option right now, Ed. Do not cop out with a bullshit audience. <laughs> your audience is listening. Right. Um, what book would you give them that would help us, the rest of the universe, understand your experience as a human? That is so difficult to answer because I don't think I've read enough books no, to be able to apply doesn't. one to my life. But don't I would say the alchemist. It. Don't avoid it. You say the alchemist. I'd say the alchemist because Go that on. is the one that I would identify with the most because I read that as I was a shepherd mm. in Spain. And then I'm finishing it. I've, well, I've read it like three times now. And I'm currently in North Africa in a... Um, what is it, the, the shop that he's in selling like ceramic pots. So it was like right there present I, for you as you were reading it? Yeah, so like I, I just, I identified so much with the main character because he goes, goes on this journey and just disregards what everyone says. No, one, no one's ever told me no in terms of the podcast. I don't, like, I, I would never ask. That's, that's the way that I do things. But yeah. to know that on my journey, I've been in so many different places and sort of just accepted those for what they are and known that there is a course and there is like a treasure at the end, which I'm far from right now, but I've always known that there is something more at the end. But you're doing the Joseph Campbell thing, which he talks about in that book, which Paolo Coelho talks about in that book, which is you're following your bliss. Yeah. And to bring in what you talked about before, the love of fate, that whole book is basically about the love of fate. Yeah. Because it's loving the stream of life and learning to trust mm. it and follow it, right? Yeah. And like there's so many times, like you, you spoke about like sports um, trading. I gambled and I gambled hard. And I remember mm. there was a time when I had to like come clean to my mum about that. Oof. And I was like, I think I was stood there, I must have been 22. And we're in the kitchen. And we were talking about something, and I just looked her in the eyes, and I was like, I think I'm addicted. And I just started crying. So I thought, I was like, I think I'm addicted to gambling. I remember I'd won about a thousand pounds on like a Barcelona game. Like it wasn't mad money, but it was mad money for me at the time because every spare bit of cash I had that wasn't going on petrol to get me to work, 
and in fact just petrol to get me to work <laughs> was just going on football i was betting on like calcutta fc on a thursday at 11 o'clock in the morning yeah and i was just betting 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 and there's times where like i've, I've come from a comfortable upbringing but like my own personal funds i always just used to rinse them to zero mm. rinse them to zero always being like minus 1000 just spending on nothing nothing really to show for it but for some reason in my mind i've always had this just trust that it would be okay and now for me it feels like i'm at a stage where i'm like okay i was actually right it is going to be okay i mean i'm not gambling anymore and I, and i won't flutter in that zone because i just know for me my personality type like I like a gamble. I, in fact, I love a gamble, so I know that I can't do it. And I think it's like abstaining from things that I love to do will just make me a stronger person in the long run. There's not too much of a point in what, <laughs> I, in what I was saying there, but just in terms of like that, just that trust in the process and trust in the universe is, is so important. And I don't know if that makes me unique or if it makes me a narcissist for thinking that that's a unique thing. Have you? You read Anti-Fragility or Anti-Fragile by I've Nassim got Taleb? it. I haven't read it. I'd love for you to get him on the podcast. Mm. And if you did, bring him over here as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nassim, I love you. You can stay here anytime. Yeah. But um, you know you know the concept, right? And I'm, You'll have to tell me. All right. Things, everything can be one of three things. It can either be fragile, robust, or anti-fragile. Okay. So a system can be fragile, which means that it suffers from stress, time, pressure, and eventually mm. cracks under that. Yep. Or it can be robust, it survives stress, time, pressure. Yep. Or it can be anti-fragile, which means it benefits from stress, time, and pressure. Okay. And so, I agree with your sentiment about the fact that this is all going in the right direction. Mm. But I don't agree with that thing that you need to abstain from what you like. Mm. I feel like sometimes we believe that we're so fragile that we need to shy away from things instead of completely immersing ourselves in them and realizing that we survive. Yeah, okay. And I think that one of the things that helped me the most in my life is that I did really throw myself into things. I used to say this thing when I was younger that the answer to going too far is going even further. Okay. And because then what you do is you prove to yourself that you're not fragile. And so then, just, yeah. just going in blind. Not even necessarily blind, but just like balls deep. Yeah. yeah. First time it might be blind, but second time it's not. Yeah. You know, like the Chinese have a saying, you know, fall in a hole once, fall in a hole twice, don't do it three times or you're an idiot or something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Forgive me if I butchered that Chinese. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, don't make a mistake three times because it's a pattern, right? And yeah. so the more you actually throw yourself into things, the more you figure out how things really work. Whereas otherwise, it's like you're not getting real feedback. Because yeah. like Nassim Taleb talks about as well, you've got no real skin in the game. Because this is the only skin in the game we have. Yeah. So if you're not putting yourself on the line, you're not getting real-world feedback about how the universe works. Yeah. And then when you do survive, you leave it with this impenetrable confidence. Because yes, one day I am going to die. I know that. I'm mortal. And mm. all of the best cultures in the world have told us to use that as a philosophical tool. And I love those cultures, and I've talked about it enough. Yeah. But while I'm alive, I'm invincible because I can continue to throw myself into things and pick myself back up as a better version of what I used to be. Yeah, okay. And so I feel like, have it all. Throw yourself into all of it. Yeah. Like the difference between the ancient Greek mentality and our mentality now, with the sense of this drive to be all-round great. The same as with the samurais and the Romans. You weren't expected to just be a sword fighter 
No. You know, you're expected to also be able to write poetry yeah. and ride horses and shoot arrows and paint pictures and speak languages and you know what I mean? Like all yeah. of this. So it's like, why do we feel the need to minimize so much what it is that we're potentially capable of? Yeah, it's a pattern that's showing up a lot in the conversation that I have at the moment. I think that people are, they just have this sense that they shouldn't shine mm -hmm. and that they should just lead this like normal life that, that society's sort of telling you to live and, that, and not, let's say we're like betting, like I'm now like betting on myself. I came out here on a flight voucher and I came out here with like five grand and I'm going to leave with way more than that. Mm -hmm. And I, it's just because I trusted myself. Like you can, of course, live in Bali with five grand, but I spent that in the first two months. Like I was like, right, let's just, let's like live. Yeah. And it's not like I'm spending it on going out. It's like I'm spending it on like private jujitsu lessons or like I'm buying a surfboard, stuff like that. Like I'm buying things that I know for me, like I'll develop skills with these things that will serve me for the rest of my life. Because like how much happier am I going to be when wherever I go to do jiu-jitsu in the world, wherever I go to like travel to Brazil or go to like Central America and I like go to surf and do jiu-jitsu, like those kind of sports and activities, they just relax my face. And I feel like that, maybe you feel like that like after meditation yeah. and after like writing. And I've started writing since I've been here. Mm, good man. And like I've, I've invested in courses to just like, just to tap into other people's brains, not necessarily to take their rules because I prefer to live the whole like I don't, I don't live by the rules. Like I, I put a post up the other day and someone was like, oh, that word doesn't look right. And I was like, oh, fuck off. There's that um, Richard Templer book there. I've got all of his other ones in my, in my room over there right now. The rules to break. Yeah. You know, he writes the rules of life, the rules of work, the rules of this. You want to just open one up and see what we yeah. get? The rules to break. Oh, here we go. You can judge a book by its cover. You, you know what? Before, <laughs> I haven't even read that one. Miss McDonnell. My English teacher from when I was 12 and 13 years old, she's the first person who told me that. Yeah. And she said you should always judge a book by its cover because every book is trying to tell you something by the way it presents itself. Yeah. So I'd sorry, agree I just wanted that. to credit her for that. that yeah, I haven't yeah. seen her in like 30 years or whatever. But go on. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd agree with that. The best things in life are free. Mm, no, they're not. I disagree with you, Richard. Yeah. I because also... I think you've got to pay with blood, sweat and tears for the best things in life and then it's worth it afterwards. I agree. I think when it comes to like, uh, Dan Harris says it in 10% Happier, and he says, people say that money can't buy you happiness, don't know where to shop. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I mean, I'm sure you could get to different parts of the world for free, but like, you'd have to swim a long way, you'd have to walk an awful long way, mm -hmm. the likelihood is you're going to get attacked on the way. Like, you have to like, pay your dues, and whether that is in like, blood, sweat and tears, or if that is in money, but money comes from blood, sweat and tears. Exactly, it's just a token of it. Yeah, it's, it's a token of it. And I think like those like, rules to break, that's definitely a book that I'm, I'm gonna be getting into because... You know what, like uh, I buy books, or I bought his books mm. the way I like to shop as well, which is like I was in the airport and I just saw like he's got like the rules of life. Yeah. I love shit like that anyway. Yeah. So I just took it off and I had a flick and then I realized there's the rules of life, rules of people, rules of management, yeah. rules to break. And so I grabbed like a whole bunch of them and took yeah. them off. That's amazing. And judging books by cover is what you've obviously done there. Yeah. Um, no, I flicked through them. Flicked through? Yeah. How do you read the whole book when, you, when you've got a book? Say you're going non-fiction or are you contents? What am I interested in? Whole thing. Whole thing. But yeah, the saying. books like this, I'll do that. Like yeah. I'll, before I read the whole thing, like I haven't read all of his ones that I've got. No. But every now and then I'll just be in here and you know, flick open and see what I get. Yeah. But if I'm immersed in a book, I want to read the whole thing. 
Yeah. I have trouble dipping from chapter to chapter or going here or there because yeah. I feel like there is a, you know what it is? It's a hang up from when I was younger, because mm. I read a lot of novels and it might not be the same with nonfiction, is that I feel like a book is an entity. You know, yeah. it's an actual thing, it's a shape. And yeah. so as I read it, it's like I'm getting to know the shape. And so if I go out of sequence, then it's going to stop me from really getting in touch with the, what the shape of that thing really is. Yeah. And tapping into like the thought sphere of the person who created it. Yeah. And I suppose if you've been reading novels, like that is a set structure. It's a story from start to finish. Yeah. And nowadays, I think a lot of non-fictions are less like fact, 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 fact. Like people have had to learn to like storytell and get their facts in there. Like Malcolm Gladwell great author like yeah. his storytelling ability is like it's insane mm -hmm. and all of these like now that are becoming like cliche like subtle art of not giving a fuck like it's just great stories with a little bit of fact mm -hmm. in there that sort of keeps keep people engaged because you want to get the non-reader into reading yeah and the only way you can do that is through telling a good story well and the story is the way that we learn fully anyway mm. because experience is the best thing experience is just our personal story yeah so if we can read another person's story then we have the chance to learn from that experience as well yeah and i think um stephen pressfield is the perfect example of that yeah you can open any page of turning pro and read a great line by him or paragraph by him mm. but there is a narrative tension and and a process of growth that goes throughout the whole book as well yeah so even though it's non-fiction he's taking you through this ride yeah if you want to go on the ride with him the best way to do it is beginning to end yeah yeah of course well look so we've spoken about the past and we've spoken about books yeah we all know the best place to go for the past is for pasta online for online.com and that, that gets you onto the course taking meditation out of the equation what would be your top three books that you'd recommend people just to sort of close things off Hmm. Which people? The general... Let's, okay, so we'll go one person who is looking to start a new project or, look at, or, or feels they have a calling of something that they want to share. Next person would be a person who's depressed. And then just your favourite book. Person who's depressed... I would say The Princess Bride, mm -hmm. because as he talks about in that book, William Goldman, the author, talks about in that book that the world is sorely lacking high adventure and true love. And that book is a book of reigniting that adventure. Mm. It's a fairy tale for adults, not in the sense that it's fluffy or light, but in the sense that it brings that true spirit back into the narrative. Yeah. And he turns both his own modern life into a fairy tale, as well as the fairy tale he's actually telling us okay and it's wonderful because of that and I feel like one thing that we could do with as a generation in general and just as a world as a whole is getting back this sense of adventure yeah not minimizing our risk to hide from the world but exposing ourselves to risk because we're ready to take it all yeah you know and be willing to jump back in I feel like that pioneer spirit is something we could do a bit more of yeah. and that book gets that for me yeah and to me depression is an easily cured thing actually it's just that we don't approach it right. I think it's the ability to be able to just say yes to life, yeah. to open yourself up and go with it, as opposed to continually closing yourself down and saying no. Yeah. And I know it's more complex than that if you're suffering at home. There are things to go through, but I feel like that book is just a one big yes. Yeah. It's a big roaring, romping adventure, taking you through the flavors of life. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, good. it's a point to note now, is that for people that would say, oh, that's easy for you to say, like, You've been through a journey, you've been through some shit, and it's, uh, 
the worst people in the world say that's easy for you to say and I just everyone that's listening don't yeah. be the worst people in the world no they, they can say that and uh, they might feel justified in saying yeah. that but the reality of the matter is I know where I've been I know what I've been through mm. and I know that there are things that work and yeah. so I wouldn't even want to make those people feel bad for saying that I'd yeah. just say that I get where you're at I get depression there is a way through it mm. don't believe the hype yeah you know yeah, the world you. is full of bullshit and people trying to sell you something but it's also full of wonderful, amazing, marvelous things waiting for you to be ready to say yes to them. Yeah. And it's like, if you, if you start gravitating towards that, then there's a lot out there that yeah, can definitely. help you. Yeah. But, um, so for the person with the project yeah. to start it up, I would say the I Ching. I Ching. Which is perhaps the oldest book in the world because when they built the walls and burnt down the books in that ancient story in China, mm. there were three classics in, the, in ancient China at the time. Yeah. Two of them were destroyed and one of them was not. And this is the one that was not. Okay. And this is not a book in the sense of a narrative. This is the structure behind every narrative. Okay. Because the Chinese, or what the I Ching tells us, is that there are infinite things, but there are only 64 type of things. Okay. So the I Ching means the classic of change. And so what it is, it's the science behind the way one thing changes to the next. And they say okay. if you understand the dif different 64 shapes of the universe, you understand how power flows through the universe and how one okay. thing moves from to the next, to the next, to the next. So when Stephen Pressfield was talking about the archetypes or Carl Jung before him, and they're going through all of this, these are like the crystallized archetypes. Okay. That's and, the diamond at the, at the bottom. Oh, this is the diamond. And... This is a book that has an intricate system. It's a form of divination where you ask it a question, but not in this random way of just opening a page like that, yeah. where there's an intricate system to be able to develop a hexagram, a diagram that leads you to one of the figures that is the answer to your question you've asked the book. So it's an ongoing dialogue. Okay. So that's why I'd say to someone who's starting a project and wants inspiration, my brother was not a big reader as well. Yeah. He didn't start until he was an adult. And this is the book I bought him that got him reading. Okay. Because he wanted to have a conversation with the book. Because it looks awfully big. This is it's... one version of the I Ching. So oh. this isn't, um, they're not all like this. Like I've got, this ah, is a, okay. look, this is a Chinese version that my friend Sue bought me. There. Thank you, Sue. And it's, it's much smaller. And I've yeah. got another version in my room that's the size of the Upanishads there. Okay. Like the tiny one. So it's like, there's bunches of these. And the version I would recommend... Well, one, I'd recommend the version that appeals to you the most. Good save. But yeah, almost. The, um, the second one I'd recommend, if someone doesn't have a version that appeals to them the most, is the Stephen Karcher Total I Ching. Okay. Because it's a good lead-in to the whole thing. All it's right. a beautiful one. And what you get to do is you get a chance to be able to reflect, ask a question that really means something to you, and get an answer from something very ancient. And mm. either that's just a reflection tool, that is allowing you to see your internal processes, or you're yeah. really talking to something else. Okay. And I'll let you decide which one of those that is. All right, nice. Well, it's definitely on my list. And now my brother uses it whenever he's going to try and start a business or make a job choice or name his kids or have a yeah. baby or get married, he will ask the I Ching. It's like a Ouija board, but better. Yeah, because you're not, you're not trying to channel demons into the world. You're just yeah. having a conversation. Yeah. Nice. Then um, the last one was, what did you say? Your favorite book. Oh, my favorite book. Whoa, that's a tough one. Hmm. There's just so many. I say, come on, Dave. My audience listening. 
<laughs> it just depends upon the day. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. But right now, I would say that I would love to dig back into the Mahabharata. Okay. Which is, you know, Joseph Campbell talks a lot about myths and legends. He would always turn to the Hindu tradition to be able to find a place for myths and legends within the common framework because it's the most yeah. complete. And to me, the Mahabharata and the stories in it have so many beautiful set pieces and moments. Like a little bit like we were talking about Pressfield with the legend of Bhagavans. Yeah. The Bhagavad Gita is a slice of the Mahabharata. Okay. So like that story and that set piece where Arjuna, the warrior prince, is about to go to war, but he's not quite sure he wants to because all the people he's going to have to kill are his friends and his family mm. and his cousins. And so all the people on his side that he loves are going to die. All the people on the other side are going to die because they're all going to kill each other. Yeah. And he's like, even if I win, I'm going to have to kill all these people I grew up with. And okay. so this moment of facing that and facing life and death and having to take decisive action within a meaningless world and make sense of it. Yeah. Luckily, he's got a god driving his chariot, so he gets to have a conversation with yeah, him. You know? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. They sorted the whole thing out. But that's the most famous bit of the Mahabharata. Yeah. But I tell you right now, there is gold like that laced through the whole thing. Okay. And one of the bits of gold is what got them into the war in the first place. You know much about this? No. All right. So Arjuna, I've, the, I've got a lot to learn from from this conversation. I'm going to be connecting to your Wi-Fi and getting straight <laughs> on my Kindle after this. <laughs> Arjuna, Arjun, the warrior prince who is the Matt Damon of the ancient story, okay. is one of five demigods who are half sun, half human. Mm -hmm. And they're the princes of this kingdom. And their cousins are always super jealous because obviously they're wonderful at everything. They're half yeah. gods. So the head of the cousins, like the thousand cousins or whatever, arranges a way to trick them out of their kingdom okay. and to get them banished to the forest for 13 years. Yeah. They rig a game of dice because they're part of the warrior caste, so um, playing dice is part of the culture. Yeah. It's something you're meant to do, you're meant to gamble, you're meant to you know, engage in the world like yeah. that. All of these five brothers are married to one woman, one princess. Okay, like, it's She's meant lucky. to be a little, Yeah, exactly, <laughs> lucky girl. Like, it's meant to be a little bit like the five senses. And, you know, this okay, okay, thing, but, yeah. but the game's rigged, and after they've lost their kingdom for 13 years and they've been banished to the forest, then the cousins go a little bit too far and they say, how about your wife? And they want to gamble away. They give them a chance to win everything back to gamble away their wife. And in the mm. heat of the moment, they start to gamble her away. Mm. And they lose her. And then so all the other people in the hall are like grabbing at her, mistreating yeah. her, grabbing her hair, ripping her like sari off and yeah. everything like that. Until someone steps in and realizes, no, this is going too far. Yeah. You know, you've taken this too far already. And they, and they separate. But it nearly got very ugly. Yeah. Krishna, who is the god who ends up driving Arjuna's chariot later, was not there because his enemies were some of the people who were there. And Krishna is a human, but he's a human who becomes the avatar of a god. Yeah. He's not always the avatar of a god. And okay. the moment when he becomes the avatar of a god is the moment when he makes the vow of the avatars. And it's when he hears about that woman being mishandled, the princess being mishandled, and he says, if I was there, that could have never happened. Mm. I don't care who was there, what was happening, I would never let a woman get treated like that yeah. for, for no reason. And he says, from this day forward, and then he takes the vow of the avatars, I would defend the righteous, destroy the wicked, and firmly uphold the law. And when he fully says that and means it, you know, it's in alignment yeah. with him, then he becomes an avatar of Vishnu. Because divinity oh. can act through him, because he's a pure vessel. Okay. So then that's how he becomes a full embodiment of the God, and okay. actualizes his power. That's amazing. Unbelievable. And how long is it? It's right there. 
there's two versions of it. There's that black one and there's that yellow spined one. And the Bhagavad Gita is right next to it actually as well. Amazing. You've got a hell of a library here. Uh, t this, uh, I'm waiting to get all my stuff from my mom's place or my place in Shanghai. And yeah. then I have a proper library, but yeah, there's a few good books here. Yeah, amazing. Well, I know you've got to go for a meeting. Yeah. And, um, and I'm sorry for keeping you, but thank you so much for that chat. I feel like my brain, I need to process a lot of what's been said in here. And I'm looking forward to like re-going through it when I, when I, before I get this out. But where, where can people find you and all of that? Because I know we're going to the passiononline.com. <laughs> Meditate. Um, Meditation Dave on Instagram, the Yogi Lab on Instagram, and the Astana on Instagram. Yogi Lab, the Astana business page is Meditation Dave's my personal page. Okay. So if you want to hear me talk about meditation and books, come to my page. The rest of the stuff, the other places. Yeah, the rest of stuff's just a the fantastic resort in Bali. You wouldn't want to look at it. Nah, forget <laughs> about it. You don't want to do anything here. Yeah, oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure, Cheers, Ed. Really good talking to you. And you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to that episode. I had such a good time recording it, and I hope you got as much as I did from there. There are a couple of books that Dave recommended that I've were waiting for me on my doorstep when I got home. So, honestly, I don't know what to say. I've re-listened to that whole episode just then, and I loved it. So hopefully you did as well. If you ever need me, catch me on Instagram. It's at a need to read with the number two and not the word. If you want to join the Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash need to read. And if you don't need me and you don't need a Patreon and you just need a therapist, then head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and you get 10% off your first month. But that is all from me. You're all legends. Love you. Bye.